Your website is the front door of your business, but the way teams build and optimize is broken. Stuck between inflexible templates and cumbersome codependent solutions, there's a better, faster way. Enter Webflow, a visual-first platform that empowers you to create freely. Now you can ship web pages in weeks instead of months and save millions in development costs. These are the real results for companies like Orange Theory, Dropbox, and IDEO. Get started today at webflow.com. Webflow, more than a website builder. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to CMO Moves. Today, I have the great honor of having Chris Capicello, who is the CMO of Microsoft, here with me today. Chris, hi, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's my immense pleasure to have you. I have so many questions for you today. Um, but first, let's start with you sharing a little bit more about your role at Microsoft and how you got to be in that role. Yeah, I'm the chief marketing officer here at Microsoft. I work for Satya Nadella, who's our CEO, and it's a real privilege to be one of his direct reports on what we call the senior leadership team at Microsoft. I've been at Microsoft for a stunning 27 years. I have only had sort of two jobs in my life. One of them was at Dom's Restaurant, which was my parents' family-run Italian restaurant in Boston, Massachusetts. And then right out of college, I joined Microsoft, and I've done tons and tons of different jobs across engineering, sales, and marketing. And about four and a half years ago, Satya became just our third CEO in the history of the company. And he asked me to stop what I was doing and to join his leadership team and, and take over the role as a CMO. And it's been just an incredible four and a half years. Wow. That is amazing. First of all, where you started and the fact that you've been at Microsoft for that long. I mean, when you started in this family business, did you ever think you'd be a CMO or did you ever think you'd work for Microsoft? How did that happen? You know, not at all. We grew up living right above the restaurant. Our grandparents lived right below us and the restaurant was on the ground floor of this apartment building that uh, we lived in. And so myself and my two brothers grew up running around the restaurant and doing all different jobs, starting at really, really young ages. My parents were smart in rotating us through all the different roles. But then somewhere in my teenage years, my dad bought an IBM PC and brought it into the restaurant and said, hey, this is your your thing is going to be to figure out how to apply this to the restaurant. And so spreadsheets and databases became what I first started tinkering around with and just completely fell in love with what a computer could actually do. And that led to you know computer science in college. And that led to learning about a whole bunch of tech companies. And Microsoft was on the top of everybody's list at college from the great intern program that we have, which I never got to do, but I heard from all the other kids who did it about what a great place it was. So as I got ready to graduate from college, you know, Microsoft was one of the places I looked at and kind of fell in love with it. Wow. Okay. And so I have to at least ask this question. Do you also know how to cook? I uh, <laughs> I wish I knew how to cook better, but I love great food. I can do a couple of the things that were really good at the restaurant, uh, but I'm certainly no expert. My older brother uh, is really the fantastic chef and he cooked for many years in the restaurant. So he, he sort of got the cooking gene in a big, big way. 
Oh, okay. Well, I was having like these grandiose images of like cool tea <laughs> parties at your house where you're like the chef with the apron and, you know, m- maybe one day, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's my next career. <laughs> I love it. Excellent. Okay. So that's really cool. And I but share, to, your- you know, to answer your core question, I never, I never really envisioned being the chief marketing officer. Even after I got here, I was never one of those people who had like this really clear 10 year plan or even a five year plan. I kind of just went from interesting role to interesting role. And I know lots of people do have five or 10 year plans, and that's a great way to be. I think it's okay to not have that plan as well. And I've been really privileged to have a bunch of cool jobs, but it was never really part of a vision that I had where this was the job I just, you know, was destined to have. Um, I'm sure glad I have it. It's fantastic. So that is perfect segue into the next question I wanted to ask you, which was how did you make some of your decisions along the way that allowed you to go into these different roles? Were there some standout things that happened? Yeah, it was a really organic path for me. I've done different jobs in different functions, and that has always been interesting because it kind of changes your perspective. And, you know, when you walk into a new job that very first day, you have those butterflies in your stomach and you're not sure who your new coworkers are. They don't really know you. I think having done that again and again, sort of hitting refresh on my career within Microsoft is one of the reasons that I'm still here after all these years, because I've had multiple fresh starts. But the gut check that I've always just done is, am I really, really excited about doing the job that I might be looking to move to? Do I think the learning curve is going to be really interesting? And will it be, you know, frankly, just an interesting experience to have? And that has served me well in that I think it's let me take unexpected changes in my career as opposed to doing maybe the tried and true thing. And it's been, you know, I've been really blessed to have these weird circuitous job changes to create a a really great path. Okay. So when you were saying that you really loved the role that you have now, it sounds like you've always selected roles that you've enjoyed or been excited by. But when it comes to being a CMO, you said you loved it. What do you love about it? Boy, I think the ability to contribute to the company on so many different levels, it just makes the job very, very fun. A big part of my job and any CMO's job is to really try to drive growth for the company. Uh, lots of people think about being a CMO as sort of doing marketing, you know, the act of building an ad or the act of doing PR or naming or branding. And those are all great things. But helping to drive the growth strategy is really, really fun. And it's a big part of the job. Helping to try to embody the culture that your company wants to create and wants to live is another big thing that I think the CMO needs to do. They're not the only person that does it. But I think uh, for me to do a really good job day in and day out, I have to be contributing to our growth strategy. And I have to be helping shape the culture of the company. And those are two big, hard, fun problems to tackle. In addition to the practitioner part of marketing, which gets to, you know, the things people think about running big events, doing advertising, PR, analyst relations, um, naming, branding, pricing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So Chris, I am so happy you just went through that because I think it's so important that people really understand how to move beyond being a functional expert to truly a a marketing leader. And, And that's a lot of what CMO Moves is about is helping to show how that works for different people in different organizations. Mm -hmm. But in there, you also were talking about your role 
in helping shape the culture. And my God, that is such an important topic. Can we spend some time there for a bit? Oh, of course. Okay, great. So my first question to you is, what is your role in shaping the culture for Microsoft? Well, you know, four and a half years ago, when Satya became the CEO, one of the things he really did was to focus uh, the leadership team on the culture that we aspire to have. And we spent a lot of time, maybe five months, really shaping and talking about and debating what is the core of the culture that we aspire to create at Microsoft. Uh, and we landed on this notion of uh, a growth mindset, you know, trying to move the company from being a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture, where curiosity and learning is uh, as valuable as anything else. And so we all signed up to activate that culture within each one of us before we tried to move on and coach other people on it. And it's been a four and a half year journey. We're certainly still not done, but we're well on our way. Some days we have really, really good days. Some days we you know, find that we still have a long way to go. So number one job for me is, of course, trying to activate and live that culture myself with the way I behave, the way I treat other people at the company. And then what are the things that we do inside our organization to further the culture at the company? We find that it's easy to think about just what you're doing inside your group. But if you can think about everything you're doing as for the whole place, you can actually start to really have a bigger impact than just the organization that you you live in. Uh, so you take things like employee communications and that's something that you know we do for the whole company. How do we have a great way to interact with our employees uh, so that we're signaling what the expected culture is and how do we show progress uh, with steps along the path? Employee comms is a really, really powerful thing to have at our fingertips that is going to reach everyone inside the organization no matter where they live and work. And that's one area where we focused a tremendous amount of our energy. But there are many, many others I could walk through if you were interested. Oh, I'm very, very interested. Please continue. What am I going to say? No, I'm not interested. Of course I'm interested. This is the most incredible topic. I'll give you, I'll give you another simple example. We used to do something called our company meeting, which was for the engineering organizations based in Seattle, where we got everybody together in sort of the big stadium here and had a day of speeches and demos. And the feedback from engineers was pretty mediocre. They had to get up too early to go to the event. They didn't like the food we gave them. The speeches were okay, but not great. And, you know, the leadership team, Satya in particular, just said, hey, why don't we just completely reimagine this and stop doing it because employees clearly don't love it and it costs us plenty of money. We came up with something where we reimagined that company meeting and turned it into something that we call One Week, which is a, a week-long activity here uh, in August that is made up of a bunch of activities, including a three-day hackathon that every employee gets to participate in if they'd like. And it's now the world's largest private hackathon. And for three days, people join different groups working on different projects that are their passion areas. We feed them, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. People work some of the longest days of the year are those days. And one of the inside jokes at the company is, how do we get the other 51 weeks to be as good as one week? Because there's so much energy and creativity and passion to work on, you know, individual projects that people just are dying to sink their teeth into. Some of those projects, you know, just last for the week, but some of them actually get funded and end up becoming real products or real 
real marketing campaigns or real new programs that we put in place. We just announced the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which is a controller that makes it much easier for anybody to game, even if you don't have full dexterity of both of your hands. And that awesome project was one of uh, the many cool projects born out of this hackathon, which I think sends a very different cultural signal about being customer obsessed and following your passion and having a growth mindset. So that's one of the more symbolic things that we've done. That doesn't sound like a big idea or a big deal, maybe from the external side. But if you are in the halls of this place, it's huge and people really rally behind it. I love it. And it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is moving from know-it-all to learn-it-all, which it's a perfect translation of how you can do that internally. Exactly. And so how do you translate that externally? Well, one of the big lessons we've learned is that the culture we care about and we want to have, we've been surprised that our customers and our partners actually want to hear about that too. They're actually interested in, hey, how are you changing the culture of Microsoft? How are you uh, going on this journey that from the outside looks like there's real change? How's that happening? So when we first started down this path, we kind of thought it was just for us and just for our employees to understand. We've come to realize that it's actually something the rest of the world is interested in hearing about and connecting with. So we think about our culture, we think about changing our own culture to be more inclusive and to have this growth mindset. But we also have learned that uh, it's important to tell the world what we stand for. It's important to tell the world the culture that we're trying to create. So we have a, a bunch of ways that we do this. One of them is a small program called Microsoft Life, which essentially is just a way for us to showcase uh, employees' experiences coming to work every day that we can share on Instagram, on our own web properties, on Facebook. Facebook, on Twitter. And it's just this small, quiet sort of movement that we've created that highlights, you know, what it's like for this employee to come to move to Seattle, Washington, coming from Ghana or coming from Orlando, Florida, and how they got to Microsoft, what they are experiencing every day. And we've been amazed at how many customers and partners are now asking us, hey, can you come talk to our leadership team about the cultural transformation that you guys seem to have gone on? And I'll be honest, it's one of our biggest surprises is that anyone would care about Microsoft's internal culture, but they do. People want to know what we stand for. They want to connect with it, and it makes them feel better about buying our products. It makes them feel better about betting their own company on our cloud platform. It's actually become a little bit of a differentiator, frankly, and it's nothing we ever set out to make it. We didn't sit down four and a half years ago and say, let's reinvent our culture and make it something that is why customers choose us. We just did it because we thought we needed to build a stronger culture in, inside. It's been awesome to see that it's actually something that can help us drive the business too. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And so much to learn from the journey that you've been on. You mentioned the words inclusive, and I think that's also very important. Obviously, I, you know, there was a phrase I used to use that diversity is an action, inclusivity is cultural. Yeah. So how do you promote inclusivity? Yeah. So when we decided on growth mindset as our cultural aspiration, we picked three things that we felt like we needed to make progress on that would prove we were building a growth mindset at the company. And one of those was inclusion. And as you say, diversity is a, is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. Diversity, you can count. 
how many people from different backgrounds work at your company, how many have you hired, how many have left, et cetera. But inclusion, you have to choose it. You have to work hard so that when someone joins your company, they feel welcome, but three months later, they feel like they belong. And that is a much, much higher bar than just counting uh, the number of employees you have of a particular gender, sexual preference, ethnicity, et cetera. So inclusion has become one of our real North Stars for making progress because we will make progress on it. That means we are demonstrating this growth mindset. There's a lot, a lot of work on inclusion at the company. And I break it down as the CMO into three categories. Uh, number one is the inclusive culture. Are we welcoming to people of all backgrounds? And do they feel like they belong here? Their voice is heard. They can have an incredible career here. They're valued. Inclusive culture is number one. Inclusive products are number two. You can't just wait to have an inclusive culture before your products are inclusive. Every product we ship needs to be usable by everybody, no matter what background, no matter what physical ability they have. So are our websites accessible for people who are blind? Can you play Xbox games if you don't have full you know, manual dexterity of both of your hands? You could go on and on and on. Are we building inclusive products is sort of the second pillar. And then the third pillar is, you know, are we doing inclusive storytelling? Are we doing inclusive marketing? Is every customer touch point an inclusive touch point? If you walk into one of our stores and you speak Spanish, is there somebody there who can speak Spanish with you so you feel welcomed? And so from the inclusive culture, inclusive product, inclusive marketing, we have different initiatives uh, for every one of those. And I think they're all really important, not just the thing that everyone seems to want to focus on, which is the culture and you know counting how many people are here. You have to do the other parts too, I think. That is such a great example for everyone. And I, I love that you broke it down into those three buckets because you're absolutely right. Inclusivity is not a thing. It lives everywhere, whether it's the culture or the products or the storytelling. And I want to take it one step further because I know you have a phrase around proximity as the path to empathy. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. One of the real lessons I've learned over the last couple of years is this notion that proximity powers empathy or proximity is the most powerful path to empathy. The idea here, and this is part of sort of our inclusion journey, but frankly, it's also just part of working as a team. The idea here is just that if you are interested in uh, reaching a new audience or you feel like you're underserving a particular population, you need to get closer to that population. You can't just read research reports about it or watch focus group videotapes. You know, you actually have to go and spend personal time with that audience, with that set of people to really understand uh, more viscerally what their issues are uh, with your company, with your products, or just what their issues are, period, and how you might actually be able to change things and solve them. There's a really beautifully powerful book that I read uh, this past year called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And uh, it's about the criminal justice system in the US. And he's a lawyer who's dedicated his life to essentially representing typically young African-American kids who are on death row. And it's not a simple read or an easy read, but part of his lessons that he's trying to teach the world is that to change things systemically, proximity is really, really critical. And the people who are in positions of power need to have proximity to whatever constituent they are trying to serve to, to build empathy. And once you build empathy, that's going to lead to you wanting to make deep systemic changes. And so it's 
a good shout out for his book for your listeners to have a really pretty cool read. But the broad lesson of proximity drives empathy, I think, is a is a great one we can all relate to. Absolutely. So well said, too. And when you think about then how you measure your progress, and, and I hate to say that because I have to tell you, just the fact that you're doing any of this is amazing, but you know, everybody measures everything these days. Yeah. So how do you, how do you measure your progress? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously we do a few different things when it comes to the diversity side, we publish a bunch of statistics every year about how we're doing with our representation of our employee base. And so everybody uh, externally and internally can track progress. And I do think diversity demands inclusion. You can't really make progress on the metrics if you don't create an inclusive environment, but the metrics are important to hold people accountable and show uh, that you are making measurable progress. And so that's one thing we do. But another perhaps more powerful thing that we do is uh, every week we send out a poll to about 2,000 employees at the company and we ask employees to rate the company on how we're doing living a growth mindset, how we're doing with customer obsession, how we're doing with diversity and inclusion, how we're doing with behaving as a single company, one Microsoft. And every week we have 2,000 votes that tell us you know, how those 2,000 people are feeling if we're making positive progress on all four of those sort of attributes. And our CEO has a Friday staff meeting. And every week we can look at, you know, what's that data look like? And it's just a random sampling of our employees around the world. But, you know, you can see the trend week in and week out on the things that employees say, gosh, you know, we, if we were really customer obsessed, we wouldn't have done what we did this week. And you can see a dip in the numbers or no, I see it. I see it more this week than I've seen it before. And so that sort of blind survey weekly is one of the ways that we can sort of track progress, but it's obviously it's very up to each individual to vote and that's okay. Okay. So that's really interesting because traditionally, you know, HR would be responsible for leading that, that charge. And maybe they still are in this case, but obviously you are working closely then with HR to get this information together. So you can then have the cross-functional C-suite meeting on the Friday. Yeah. Yeah, we're very lucky that the cultural change at the company is uh, Satya's initiative, is our CEO's initiative. It's not a marketing initiative. It's not an HR initiative. He is the one driving this. And that makes HR's job so much easier. It makes my job uh, so much easier that we're doing this because it's high on his agenda. And I really, you know, my heart goes out to any company where they're trying to do this just from marketing or just from HR, particularly at an engineering driven company like, you know, Microsoft or any high tech company. Our life is made far simpler by the fact that Satya cares a lot about changing the culture of the company. And then his 15 direct reports, we're all working as a team to help change the company's uh, culture. And so HR sends out that poll, uh, you know, 2,000 people a week. We all get together on Friday and we can look at that data anytime, anytime we want to. We look at it collectively as a team. It's not the marketing team trotting in to show the data. It's essentially our data. Wow. Okay, Chris, I'm so impressed. And I have to ask you probably what's going to sound like a super silly question, but I'm dying to know. How did you learn these leadership skills? Boy, um, well, obviously being surrounded by great people is really helpful. I had a job six or seven years into the company. I was very blessed to get a job working for Bill as his speech helper. 
uh, Bill Gates, sorry, who was the CEO at that time. And so for two and a half years, I got to sort of shadow him and be a fly on the wall as you know he traveled around and he would give lots of speeches that I would be sort of responsible for. But then I also got to sort of sit into the business meetings that were happening there too. And he was incredibly generous and gracious with answering all of my sort of annoying questions that I would ask uh, as we were you know finishing one meeting and driving off to the next speech or what have you. And so I think a couple of the jobs I've had, that job, and then I I was a sort of a chief of staff type person to the head of sales for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which is you know a huge region. I got to live in Paris and work really closely with the president of that region, who's now on the senior leadership team of the company. And working with those two big, big leaders early on in my career, just as a staff person, you know, I got to see some of these people working at a scale I had never ever thought I would ever see. And I think I was really blessed to get immersed in that environment and, you know, found newfound respect for how hard it is to lead something that big. And so I picked up a lot of things just by seeing it up close and personal. Uh, And then I've had great mentors uh, throughout my career who were very generous with their teachings and sharing their time when I was struggling with something. And I think uh, those things help. That's wonderful to hear. And I want to talk to you about your mentors, but I have to say, I was a little bit laughing when you said somebody was so patient when you were asking all these annoying questions. And I feel like that's me asking you all, and you've been very patient. So I wanted to say thank you. Um, <laughs> My pleasure. This is what I'm here for. I love it. Wow. Well, you, you picked up a lot. You, you learned the skills for sure. Um, so let's talk about mentors. And you said you had a few. Can you share either who they were or what was it about them? that made them great mentors to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've I've sort of sought out different people over different periods of my career. Uh, and I've always gone for somebody who I thought had some skills that I really respected and was inspired by and wanted to try to learn from. And picking the right mentor is a good is a good thing to be thoughtful about. I always went for someone who wasn't in my sort of chain of command, if you will, and who I respected deeply on some dimension that I hope to get better at. And so I went into a relationship with a mentor with sort of an idea of what I wanted to get from it. And that was that was very helpful. But I found that one of my best mentors was someone who every time we got together would spend a lot of time on what was going on in my personal life. Didn't necessarily want to hear about everything that was happening at work, but he'd always say, you know, how's how's your wife? Tell me about your daughters. What what are they doing in school? And I would get very impatient with that because I would, I, you know, I wanted, I had my agenda. I wanted to get on to like, no, no, I got to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. And he wouldn't move off it. He just stayed with this sort of, let me tell you a little story about what's happening in my life or whatever. And it was a great lesson for me to learn in, you know, when you are leading something big, it's very easy to just focus on the immediate urgent things. And yet, if you want to build a real connection with someone, if you want to build real followership, there's time and you have to spend time and show them that you care about what's going on in their life. You care about how they're doing, not just at work, but in home too. And it took me a long time to sort of get over that I was going to have to spend 15 minutes of my hour talking about my daughter, showing him how I use OneNote in a way that he doesn't use OneNote. And that little kibitzing, so to speak, has, I think, made me far more empathetic and has helped me connect with people 
uh, more easily, more quickly and value that as opposed to just jumping into the bullet list that each of us has to power through in our one hour meeting. Okay. So that's so fascinating. And I do not want to take any credibility away from what you just said, but I have to ask if you only had one shot with like the mentor of your dream, what question would you ask them? Wow. Well, I think it kind of depends on who the person is and what their superpower is. Uh, and so for someone like Bill, it would have to be around his incredible capacity to learn and his incredible curiosity. Because in my time with him, I was just stunned at his reading capacity and his breadth of interests. And so my question for him would clearly be around how does he decide how to spend his time? How does he decide what projects he's going to actually involve himself in? What's that thought process like? And how does he keep that curiosity sort of stoked so much. For somebody like Satya, who's our current you know, CEO, uh, one of his magic powers is just this incredible empathy that he has. He has this ability to put himself in other people's shoes. He's never done marketing in his career. And my, my goodness, he really somehow understands what it's like to be a marketer in high tech. And he has great empathy for the difficulties of that. So, you know, my question for him would be around that superpower. How did he nurture that? Did he, was he born with that? Did he work on it? And what tips would he have for other people who want to sort of build that superpower? But it, it would be very particular to the person themselves. And I think that served me well over the years in working with different mentors. Okay. Such great advice. Um, unfortunately, Chris, we're almost out of time. So I'm, I have one question left for you, but I want to open it up to you for anything and or everything you want to share. For anybody who's listening, any major tip for success or something that you learned the hard way, something that you would coach somebody to really dig into as they're growing in their marketing career? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing I would say is don't be afraid to go after something that feels like it's risky. I took some weird paths in my career where lots of people told me not to take a particular job. And I had other people saying, no, you should absolutely take that job. And if you are excited about something, you know, go for it. Even if you don't know what it'll lead to, there's no real guarantee. If you have your 10-year plan and you think you know the four jobs you're going to do in the next 10 years, don't be so wedded to that that you don't consider crazy ideas that fall into your lap uh, because those crazy ideas, you know, can really sometimes change the course of your career in a very positive way. So go after what interests you. Go after the risky thing. Don't be so conservative that you don't put yourself out there and do some crazy jobs that really unlock a different career path than you had planned for yourself. Okay. Great advice again. All right. So my last question to you, if you weren't already doing something you love being a CMO and you could do anything in the world, money were no object, nobody to answer to, what would you be doing? Oh boy. I'd be a professional tennis player. Uh, for sure. I played competitive tennis as a kid. And uh, when I turned 17, a guy named Boris Becker was also 17 and he was winning Wimbledon. And then the next year I turned 18 and he turned 18 and he won Wimbledon again. And that's kind of when I knew that that wasn't going to happen for me. Uh, <laughs> and so if you tell me, wow, I could literally do anything, I certainly would have loved to be a professional athlete and specifically a professional tennis player, just because it's a sport that I think is phenomenal and totally love following the pros now. So if you literally give me a magic wand, that's what I would do. 
Well, I'll tell you what, Chris, you know, you are the CMO of Microsoft, and I'm pretty sure you can host some cool events where maybe it's a tennis match that you could be involved in. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's a great idea. <laughs> Invite Boris. You know, you might have a chance at that right now. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, Chris, it's been a real pleasure having you with me today. Thank you so much for all the great advice and the time you took to spend with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.